Welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast. As a digital extension of the Ackerman Center, our goal is to teach the past so we can change the future. In doing so, we address issues related to the Holocaust, genocide, and human rights studies from diverse perspectives. Good afternoon. We're back here with the years. We'll explain in a moment more about it, but for now, I'm really excited to welcome our uh, research assistant, Angie. Do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and say a couple of words about yourself? Sure, Dr. Armour. Thank you. I am Angie Simmons. I am a research assistant for the Ackerman Center, and I also am a PhD student in the history of ideas, focusing my research on ideological motivations behind uh, genocide and mass violence. That's uh, quite a handful and something that will occupy you for um, quite a while to, to, to go. But for now, we're just here to consider what we had started a good while ago, and we just call amongst ourselves the years. And those are the podcasts where everyone is dedicated to one of the years of the Third Reich, beginning with 1933 and concluding with 1945. And today's podcast will be dedicated to the year 1939. Now, the idea about these podcasts is in lots of ways for us every time to kind of return to something that, strangely enough, is not particularly valued these days in our culture, and that is to ask questions. We're like more in tune to answering usually all kinds of things rather than asking questions. And this is really deliberately designed to ask questions. And the very first one that we ask ourselves always, what is the defining event of a particular year? And that turns out to be actually far more complicated to answer than to ask the question, but therefore it opens up for us an interesting new way maybe of looking back at that because if it is for us complicated or difficult to answer that question, then we must assume that for contemporaries to discern the decisive changes in in the kind of changing political landscape of sorts would have been even more um, implausible. So therefore, in many ways, this podcast is designed to ask questions. And the question that we are asking ourselves today is, what is the defining event of 1939? Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. And I think that um, it's also interesting to think about these events occurring at the time and that those living through it not really realizing the significance of what they're living through. But of course, with historical hindsight, we can see these events culminating in particular ways. But for them at the time, they don't quite realize the significance or the magnitude of what they're living through. So what is our big event? For 1939. So for 1939, we're going to discuss the establishment of ghettos and uh, the introduction of armbands for the Jewish population. And for the purpose of that, we have an article. Wireless to the New York Times, Paris, December 9th. Jews' plight held critical in Poland. Warsaw community official says all lives in terror of Gestapo and Nazi chiefs. First-hand information of the Jewish situation in the German-occupied section of Poland, particularly in Warsaw, has been obtained here from Dr. Heinrich Zoski, vice president of the Hebrew religious community in the former Polish capital, 
who escaped last month. Jews all over the German part of Poland live in constant fear of new persecutions and new orders, making life even harder, he said. In his capacity as representative of the Jewish community, he had many contacts with the German authorities, the army, Gestapo, and Nazi party officials. He came to the conclusion that the Nazis' aim was physical destruction in the shortest possible time of as many Jews as possible. The Gestapo, he related, had ordered that a ghetto be established in the middle of November. In three days, they sought to transfer to the already overcrowded and greatly damaged Nalevki district all of the 160,000 Jews of the mixed districts of Warsaw, thus nearly doubling the Nalevsky population. He said there were already 366,000 Jews living in Warsaw now, even more than before the war, owing to a large influx from neighboring towns. The ghetto was to be fenced with barbed wire from 7 o'clock in the evening until 6 in the morning, he recounted. In the daytime, Jews were allowed to visit other parts of the city. The Gestapo, said Dr. Soskis, would not listen to the protests of Jewish delegations, but yielded to the demands of military commanders that they postpone their ghetto plan until epidemics had been combated. He declared the typhoid fever and dysentery toll to be 20 times higher than in the worst previous years. The Nazis suggested to the Jewish delegation the evacuation of all non-Jews from the future ghetto, he continued, but that was indignantly refused. So let's return to the establishment of the ghettos. Um, what does it tell us? What does our newspaper article um, tell us about this? Our newspaper article uh What's interesting about it is that it's from an outside perspective. It's actually coming out of Paris. So that's another thing that is um, important to look at when we're looking uh, at these events is that they're obviously going to be experienced quite differently in other places than they are where they're happening, like in Germany, for example. Um, so this one it seems pretty benign uh, in reporting that uh, Jews are being moved into ghettos all over Poland. There's not really a particular sense of peril or or um, despair. It's more of a statement. There are a bit of um, opinions that come through that discuss, you know, how this is, at least with the title specifically, a plight. Obviously, there's a recognition that this is not an ideal situation for the Jewish people in Germany. Um, but I think as far as with our historical lens, looking back at this, we don't really see that it seems a very threatening uh, event that's taking place, just that Jews are being relocated into uh, these ghettos. But I think it is really important to note that it was not initially the aim of the Third Reich to to destroy Jewish life, to annihilate Jews. Uh, the plan for the ghettos was really just a plan of resettlement and a temporary resettlement at that uh, to move Jews out of the living space and to concentrate them into particular areas, occupied Poland. Um, and even there was a plan to move them eventually to Madagascar. But um, 
as time went on uh, and transportation and logistics uh, became more complicated, the ghettos became more of a permanent uh, solution for uh, the resettlement of Jews. And obviously, as time went on, because these were designed to be temporary holding places, conditions deteriorated because of that. Very true. So we're really looking at one of these kind of critical turning points. But I think insofar as it's significant to understand what is happening, it might be also really significant to understand who is in charge. And I think that's also an interesting one. Um, The one who actually issues these new orders is not directly Hitler. It's not one of the higher ranking militaries that, you know, as an occupying force would maybe issue orders as to how it would deal with the occupation, but it's Reinhard Reinhard Heydrich. And Heydrich obviously would become a notorious individual calling the infamous Wannsee conference together. And therefore, he would truly be the one who's in charge ultimately of overseeing and implementing what would become known as the Holocaust. So the fact that he's risen to such level of importance here um, spells out probably disaster more than what is actually already happening on the ground. Because it means that up until 39, most of the anti-Jewish measures, intimidations and harassments had still been put through by utilizing some of the pre-existing state authorities and the ministries and so on and so forth. Here now, there's a new power uh, group emerging that really in 35, 36 was a bunch of insignificant lunatics. I mean, they're still lunatics, but less insignificant. Uh, but now at the cusp of the war, they're all of a sudden catapulted into this tremendous pole of importance. And it's very clear that for Heydrich, what he envisions is far more wide ranging than what actually is happening right on the ground. So he issues orders indeed, like you said, to concentrate Jews in major cities near major railroads, but he also is already anticipating or hoping to transfer Jews from the Reich to Poland, along with, which is also interesting, um, the remaining 30,000 Sinti and Romas. So in lots of ways, this is not just simply taking care of the occupation in Poland, but the way he's thinking about it is really a kind of radical remaking of the makeup of of the European landscape, large-scale population transfer, which was part and parcel of of politics of occupation um, and expansion from the First World War onwards. In that respect, maybe not quite as novel or radical. What is interesting is that these things don't quite yet happen. So there is maybe a more radical vision already at play, but there's still apparently some reluctance to go fully forward with all of these things in in full force. The other more hidden one, which I find is interesting, is the one that gets back dated to September 1st. And that is that Hitler authorizes a euthanasia program for now um, an attempt to kill systematically Germans with mental and physical disabilities. And that's another linking bit that we have because it is within the context of the euthanasia program that many of the methods that ultimately were to be employed with the mass killing of Jews are tested out, as well as a personal um, that is in charge ultimately of some of the desk camps get their initial training. So they, 
the dates of our key events are really intricately interwoven with each other. There's a lot of, much that very quickly changes. There's also the more radical change that at this point, um, the partner in crime, so to speak, is the Soviet Union. While wow, this Third Reich attacks the Poland from its side, the Soviets are attacking it from the other side. So in lots of ways, this is still very far away from the political landscape of Operation Barbarossa and the attack on the Soviet Union. Um, but whether any of this would have been discernible to our contemporaries um, is harder to establish. On the ground for German Jews, deportation by and large do not begin right away. That's maybe really important to say. But at the same time, there's probably a kind of sense now that, um, and that's why German Jews try in record numbers to get away now, um, that as something, the end of, of Jewish life in Germany has, has come to, to, to you know, become more and more apparent. So yes, we have our date, establishment of the ghettos, very telling, though still caught up in conflicting rationals, right? Uh, concentration, exploitation. Uh, there's a you know growing um, desire to extract value. Um, that's why on the one side they're quite literally scooping up whatever they can, but also they're establishing in some of the ghettos then ultimate work units that they can um, exploit. Um, but ultimately, it's the occupying power that is taking control of the population, but also thereby creates really. Um, situations that enable it to extract more and more value from Poland. I mean, not just from the ghettos, but more generally also from Poland, which will um, then be shipped, so to speak, to the Reich in order to sustain the war effort. The Yellow Star. That's your other marker, Angie. Why is the Yellow Star so important? What do you think? I think the Yellow Star was a very important piece of this puzzle because it was yet another tool by which the Germans, the, the Nazis, were able to um, humiliate and um, and single out the Jews for, uh, you know, the persecution that they were going to uh, thrust upon them. So I think the Yellow Star, obviously, it has a history. It's not something that was new or um, unique to the um, this time period. But it is something that uh, they brought back. I think that it wasn't until uh, 1941 where the uh, actual order was issued that um, anyone over the age of six, any Jews over the age of six, were forced to wear the star. Well, the first order comes in in November 23rd. German authorities require that all Jews residing in the general government over the age of 10 to wear the white armbands with the Star of David. Um, it later on becomes applicable to other territories, including the German Reich. Um, but that's in lots of ways the, mar the, the physical marker is probably one of the attempts to really separate out now the Jews um, from the rest of the Polish population and really to create like a you know separation of, of these two otherwise very interwoven groups. And in many ways, um, that's you know one of the elements that will ultimately helped for the, helped the third right to isolate Jews the other one that I you know I think is, is significant is that Heydrich again orders now the beginning of deportations of Jews and Poles from the district of Vaterland as it calls an area of Western Poland directly annexed to the German Reich to the general Gouvernement. and by December 
1941, they deported approximately 100,000 Jews from these areas to the general government. So this is before the actual mass deportations begin, but it almost seems if in small, they're already practicing some of the things that ultimately were to come to bear. What both of these things, the beginning of deportations in this kind of more limited manner, as well as the Star of David suggests, is, is this racial ideal of creating, well, homogenous racial communities by either differentiating them, separating out Jews from others by having to wear um, visible markers or by separating them out insofar as they're deported elsewhere. But overall, and this is really important for us to remember, the methods here are horrendous, but they are not quite yet geared toward mass killing and death camps. There are population transfers, isolation, harassment, intimidation, extraction of value, starvation, anything else that one can think of, but not quite yet a coordinated European-wide um, continental genocide. Thank you very much, Angie. Um, the years will continue. Next time we will focus on 1940. All right. Hope to hear you all soon again. Bye. Goodbye. This podcast is hosted by a team of dedicated faculty and research assistants at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies. You can learn more about our work and find upcoming events at our website, www.ackerman.utdallas.edu.